Well, welcome back to another week of This Week in Government Enforcement. Jerome Thomas, joined as always by Tom Firestone. Um, we're getting back to the roots of this, um, given that we are um, in the, the very beginning stages of the Elizabeth Holmes uh, criminal trial. What Tom and I thought made sense is that we pretty much just spend 25, 30 minutes um, just discussing the trial and the issues in the trial. There's so many issues. Um, there are criminal issues, there are securities laws issues, um, and I'm sure there are a lot of folks out there that um, have questions, some of the same questions that I think Tom and I had, frankly, that um, you know, we, we just want to sort of share with you and walk them through, sort of share with you what our mind is on that. Um, and so it'll be very much a dialogue if, as if Tom and I were in the same room. Um, so I guess, Tom, you know, maybe since it is a federal criminal trial, I'll have you kick it off, but I'm going to jump in liberally with my own views, and I know we're going to be asking each other questions here. So why don't you kick it off? Sure. Thanks, Jerome. Well, as I think everyone knows, the trial started last week. We had opening statements last week as of the taping of this show, which is the afternoon of Tuesday, September 14th. The government completed its first witness and who is now on cross-examination, uh, the former controller of Theranos. So one day, just to set the stage, in case anyone doesn't know what the case is about, I'll lay it out a little bit. Then I have some questions for you, Jerome, about the securities fraud aspects of this case. And then I'll talk about some of the evidentiary issues and what we might expect to see at the trial as it moves forward. Um, in case anybody doesn't know, Elizabeth Holmes was this legendary Silicon Valley entrepreneur. She dropped out of Stanford at the age of 19. She started this company, Theranos, which promised revolutionary blood testing technology. And her idea was that you could take just a, you know, a single uh, prick of a finger, drop of blood, and with that drop of blood, you could do all sorts of analysis and testing. This was the value of this was that it would obviate the need to do take more blood from the person with a big needle and you could get faster results covering a whole range of conditions than you could through traditional um, through traditional technologies. She started the company in 2003 build it up, got a lot of big investors. I think at one point the company was valued at $9 billion. She had Rupert Murdoch who invested a huge sum of money. Betsy DeVos's family invested a huge sum of money. She put together this all-star board, which included George Schultz, former secretary of state, um, two former, at least two former senators. Henry Kissinger was also on the board. And the by all accounts, until about 2015, the company seemed to be a huge success, people comparing it to various other Silicon Valley um, startups that we all know about, um, Apple, Google, Oracle, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in 2015, as a result of some whistleblower reports, investigations by the FDA, um, investigation most significantly by the Wall Street Journal, it was alleged that this whole thing was a fraud, that the testing machines didn't actually work, that they were in fact using, they were taking blood ostensibly and testing it through their own machines, but they were in fact using commercially available traditional technology to do testing in a lot of cases, that they didn't really have the technology to make this work, that some of the, a lot of the test results were inaccurate, blood was not handled properly in the labs. And as a result of that, there was an SEC investigation, a settlement with the SEC, um, which led to the company basically going under and now criminal charges. And she and her um, former CFO, Sonny Bawani, have been charged with multiple 
multiple counts of wire fraud and wire fraud conspiracy for reasons which I'll talk about in a second. The cases between Holmes and Balwani have been severed. He will go next after her trial. And we are starting the case now. The government is starting the case now, and we'll have to see how it uh, proceeds. On one hand, if one reads the media, it seems like it would be a very easy case for the government because so many people have come forward with allegations of fraud. Some of the allegations, I mean, the, the victims, people were falsely informed that they had all sorts of conditions, cancer, what have you, when they didn't because of the faulty technology. Um, uh, and a lot of people lost a lot of money. So it seems like a very appealing case. On the other hand, she's going to have some very interesting defenses available to her, um, which I will get into in a second. But just to start out, I think, Jerome, I just wanted to get your thoughts on some of the securities fraud aspects of this. It, the case is charged as wire fraud, not securities fraud. Um, presumably because it was not a publicly traded company. She never went public. They were, in fact, quite secretive about their their methods for a variety of reasons, which would have made an IPO an unattractive um, uh, prospect. On the other hand, they did actually settle with the SEC, um, I think, in 2018, um, which was what resulted in the company going under, and they settled for $500,000. So one question I've had about this as it's gone on, if it wasn't a publicly traded company, how did the SEC get involved in the first place? Why did they settle with the SEC? And why did the SEC, given the nature of the allegations and the extent of the alleged fraud, settle with them for only $500,000? Yeah, yeah, Tom, great questions. I remember when this was bubbling up kind of in the, the second half of last decade, um, one of my immediate questions I, I had is, well, you know, will the SEC get involved here? Um, and you're absolutely right. Um, uh, Theranos was not a publicly traded company. Um, what does that mean? It means it doesn't have its securities traded on a national securities tra uh, exchange in the U.S., nor is it traded over the counter, nor does it have um, uh, uh, asset levels or, or shareholder levels such that it has to file uh, reports with the Securities and Exchange Commission under um, the Securities Exchange Act of 1934. Um, those are, are called reporting and registered companies, um, uh, but, but specifically publicly traded companies, what you oftentimes see, for example, Enron was a publicly traded company back in the early 2000s, and we'll compare and contrast Theranos to Enron. Um, but that doesn't mean the SEC doesn't have jurisdiction over companies whose securities aren't traded. Um, uh, as you know, Tom, uh, the SEC has jurisdiction over all issues. An issuer is, is, a, is, is a company that issues securities to investors. And if you read the papers, um, what the SEC alleged, and frankly, what the, the, the Department of Justice has alleged as well, is that um, Theranos had issued securities. Now, the, the papers in the SEC's case here um, are a bit scant on what the actual nature of those investments or those securities that were issued to investors were. Um, but there are um, allegations that securities were issued to investors and securities were offered to investors in, um, uh, in the company in exchange for financing, that in connection with that financing and, and those offerings of securities, certain misrepresentations were made to investors about, among other things, the viability and the functionality of the TSPU or the mini lab, right? Which is kind of the glue that holds all of the other um, allegations in this case, FDA contracts, DOD, FDA approval, DOD contracts, et cetera, um, you know, uh, contracts with, with grocery stores and pharmacy chains 
for running these tests. It all comes down to the viability of this mini lab or this TSPU, the, the thing that Theranos uh, was offering or that it was its product offering. And the SEC alleged that misrepresentations were made to investors about the functionality of this unit. And therefore that was securities fraud, right, Tom? It's no different than if you think about it, um, the $3 million offering fraud that happens in the Central District of Illinois or in the Eastern District of New York on a much smaller level. Um, th those oftentimes you see the SEC bring cases there, misrepresentations about the use of proceeds and about the viability of the investments. Those, those are bread and butter SEC cases. And so in many respects, this is kind of that bread and butter SEC case, except it is a Silicon Valley um, unicorn front of the Wall Street Journal, Wall Street Journal expose related um, case. So it, it has a feel that it's different, but really to a securities lawyer, an SEC enforcement lawyer, um, there's, there's nothing different than your, your standard run of the mill offering fraud case that we all brought when we were in the office. Well, I think that's right. In so many ways, it's gotten so much attention. It's gotten a lot of attention because it's the first case of its kind in Silicon Valley. She was such a public figure, this great you know, woman entrepreneur, trailblazer. She had this all-star board. There was a lot of money. But at core, it seems to me, if one accepts the allegations, classic fraud. I've got this miracle device, you know, yeah. it cures everything. Give me money and then we're going to go out and make a lot of money. So it's a fraud both on the investors and on the purchasers. Um, and that's, in fact, the way it's been charged for the most part. So at core, it's just fraud is fraud is fraud. It's wow. like, yes. <laughs> give me money <laughs> for something what I know and I know it's not true. Yeah, and, and Tom, it's interesting, and this will kind of, I think, jump into your your discussion. But I, I, I went and, and and I looked at the the the, the indictment um, against Elizabeth Holmes, and again, it, it is wire fraud, right? And we all know the wire fraud statute. That is the pet. That that is what most prosecutions for fraud are brought as by uh, by uh, U.S. attorneys' offices. Um, interestingly, there is a securities law or securities fraud statute. Um, 13 um, USC, I'm sorry, 18 USC 1348. It's modeled after the wire fraud statute, um, except the thing is that in order to bring a securities fraud action under 1348, um, the, the stock that is the issue of the fraud be publicly traded or registered with the SEC under the 34 Act. And remember here, that's the difference between Theranos and say Enron which is Enron, its stock was publicly traded. It, it had registration statements filed under the 34 Act. Its securities were registered under the 34 Act. So it fell squarely within the um, securities fraud statute, which is why um, the, the officers of Enron were charged with, among other things, conspiracy to commit securities fraud and why the SEC papers against Enron or, or the officers of Enron back in 2000 or the early 2000s were not just securities fraud, 17A and Section 10B, 10B5, but were a host of other reporting violations, books and records, internal controls, scheme to circumvent internal controls, and falsify books and records. Again, all of that happens when you have a, um, a publicly traded or reporting company. Here, that was not Theranos, which is why I think the allegations are much more bare bones, at least from a legal theory standpoint. It's good old-fashioned securities fraud, 17A and 10B, 10B5, and, and from the DOJ side is wire fraud. They're not charging securities fraud because they don't have that public company hook or nexus. 
Right. So that's why they charge 1343 instead of 1348. Makes sense. Why add an additional element, especially one that would be extremely difficult to prove in this case if you don't have to. But the SEC did go after them, did settle with them. And I think the thing that puzzles a lot of the a lot of people look at this about the SEC case is we've got hundreds of millions of dollars of fraud alleged and they settled for five hundred thousand dollars. How did that happen? Yeah, um, that's a great question. And so they actually explained that in their settlement uh, press release uh, back in 2018. Um, they said, look, uh, because the company was in liquidated, it was liquidation and uh, Toronto was acquired or otherwise liquidated, Holmes wouldn't profit from her ownership at all uh, or wouldn't profit from her ownership until redemption of certain warrants. Um, uh, and, and as a result of that liquidation, you know, the, the, the SEC's view was she was not going to profit. So her, the, the SEC said she's not going to profit from this. Um, and in, in the SEC's mind, um, and from a policy standpoint, when the criminal authorities are involved, the SEC tends to go after ill-gotten gains. And when the SEC sees there are either no ill-gotten gains or whatever potential ill-gotten gains there are, are going to be essentially theoretical and are going to redound to some other beneficiary and not the wrongdoer. The SEC will back off of a disgorgement claim because there is no disgorgement and will go after a, and will seek a minor civil penalty because sort of, you know, the punitive aspect of the case, the punishment, they will defer to the U.S. Attorney's Office, which is proceeding criminally as the main thrust, if you will, of the punitive aspect. And the SEC will kind of revert to its more traditional equitable, um, disgorging ill-gotten gains and not necessarily being punitive in nature, um, that being more criminal in nature. So I, I think that's what drove this. Tough to know, I wasn't in the room, but reading the SEC's press release and, and knowing what I do about how the SEC proceeds in these cases, I think that's what was at play here. That all, that all makes perfect sense. So that brings us to the criminal trial. And now I want to talk about a few of the issues that we're likely to see come up. The trial is expected to last several months, and there will be a lot of other issues. But um, we just wanted to provide some context because, again, you know, the media coverage is the media coverage. They focus on a lot of the human interest elements of this, which are obviously important. We wanted to try to go a little bit deeper into some of the key legal issues that are likely to come up. And one of these is in almost every fraud case, the central question is state of mind. Did the person who was accused know that what they were saying was false or did they have a good faith belief in its um, in its veracity? And that will likely be the central issue um, here as well. Now, again, to watch all the movies about this and the reports, one would think it's an open and shut case. I don't think it's going to be as easy as a lot of people are predicting. She has an extremely good defense team, some of the best criminal defense lawyers in the country. And I think she's going to have some good arguments. I, one of her arguments will undoubtedly believe, be that, look, this is technology. This is blood testing technology. It's complicated science. We didn't know where it was going. I dropped out of Stanford after two years. I was relying on other people in the company, the scientists. There was a lot of evidence that this was working. Yeah, it didn't work perfectly from day one, but we were moving in the right direction. Nothing works perfectly from day one. Every entrepreneur takes time when they try and they invent and they reinvent. And you know, Edison himself, who was one of her role models, 
failed a lot of times before he got it right. And they will undoubtedly make a lot of that, that this was a work in progress, that the people she was soliciting for investments were quite sophisticated as investors. They knew that this was a risky proposition. They knew it was a long-term proposition. And moreover, that she had a whole staff of scientists that she was relying on and that she they gave her information that gave her a good faith basis to believe that this was going to work. It's also clear from her pretrial motions that she's trying, going to try to blame a lot on Balwani, the former CFO. She filed a motion in which she, uh, her lawyers moved to admit expert testimony on so-called um, intimate partner abuse, which is um, uh, the argument, it's going to be the argument of her expert witness, that she was abused and manipulated by Balwani and I don't think from the papers that she's going to say that, you know, he forced her to misrepresent anything, but just because of the psychological control that he exercised over her, that she was much more deferential to his representations, and that made her vulnerable to the lies that he was telling her, and therefore she had a good faith basis. That's why she relied on these things when she was telling investors about it. She was relying on Balwani. She was afraid to question Balwani because of the kind of control that he exercised over her. That, I think, is going to be, I mean, it's clearly going to be an element of uh, the defense. The government will undoubtedly come back with all sorts of witnesses who will say that she was the one running the company. She brought Balwani in. She fired Balwani. If one of the documentaries on this had the security guards talking about they would come in together to the office every day. Um, Eagle One and Eagle Two are here. She was Eagle One. He was Eagle Two. And they will undoubtedly have emails as well as employee testimony, which they will say shows that she was the one really the running the company rather than rather than him. One of the key questions is whether or not she is going to testify in her own defense. Now, one of the pretrial motions, the one about the expert testimony, said that she is going to testify. Um, she is uh, she's a great public speaker. She's apparently incredibly convincing. She convinced a lot of very smart, sophisticated people to put a lot of money into this. And she and her lawyers may feel that she can convince the jury of her case as well, given her um, natural persuasive skills. On the other hand, she's made a lot of public statements that um, some of which are demonstrably false and will open her up to cross-examination. So it may be that she doesn't testify after all. Um, I think the lawyers are certainly signaling in that direction. I think the jury's expecting it. So if she doesn't testify, that could be a very high risk move on her part. On the other hand, if she does testify, yeah. that will be a very high risk move because she can be cross-examined. One thing we can say for sure, we don't know if she's going to testify, but one thing we can say for sure, if she does testify, that is going to be the decisive moment of the trial. If the jury believes her, they will acquit. If they don't believe her, they will convict. So if that will be, that will be the turning point in the trial, if she does testify. Yeah, so, so Tom, a couple, couple things I saw. Um, recently, the DOJ or the government has uh, released, uh, um, presumably for evidence at trial, a number of texts between between Elizabeth Holmes and Balwani, um, it, presumably for a couple reasons. I, I saw some excerpts. One, which is sort of you can see that there's a there are sh there's showing of affection and love. I'm so happy to have you, love you, etc. Things along those lines. But then there are also some texts where it appears 
that, you know, Elizabeth Holmes is sort of, you know, on the aggressive side saying, there's some people out there talking, you know what, about our technology, we have to go get them. So clearly the Department of Justice is looking at this as, well, if she's going to take the, the, the position that she was in some kind of, um, you know, 1B role to Balwani, these texts clearly suggest otherwise, that that she was the one driving the ship and that she was at very least an equal partner with Balwani, if not completely driving the ship here. Well, and they will undoubtedly say these are a few texts taken out of context. They don't give you the full picture of the relationship. And just because she acted that way doesn't mean that she wasn't suffering from intimate partner abuse. And that's why their expert testimony is going to be so important. But this puts the burden on her to testify because how else are you going to explain those texts unless she gets up there and explains them? So um, I think that's going to be the pivotal moment in the trial. Now, coming back to Balwani, there's some fascinating issues around his case as well. He was indicted together with her. He w- his case was severed, is going to go after her trial. Um, ordinarily, that's a good thing, because if you go second, you get to see the whole government's case. You get to see all of their witnesses. You get to see what worked on cross-examination of those witnesses, what didn't work on cross-examination of those witnesses. So that would ordinarily give him a big advantage. The flip side of that in this case is if we're going to hear substantial evidence that he abused her and was really the culpable one, he's going into that second trial in a big hole because that could obviously influence the um, the uh, the jury pool. It may be that depending on if she gets convicted, um, he may then be induced to take a plea after seeing what happens in her case. So his case is going to be very much dependent on what happens in her case. He recently filed a motion to allow his lawyers, asking the court to reserve seats at the trial for his lawyers so that they could see what was going on. The motion was denied. The court said, you know, too bad. You wanted to be severed. This is the chances. You take your own chances. There's members of the public. There's members of the defense team who need to be in the courtroom. So if you get a seat, that's great, but we're not going to reserve. Uh, we're not going to reserve a seat for you. Another interesting issue in this case is going to be about whether or not the technology worked. Um, and this comes back to this fascinating issue of the laboratory information system. Um, she had data. They had a laboratory information system which contained all the data about the blood tests, which they claim uh, the defense claims. Uh, would be exculpatory if it could be presented at trial. Um, It's not available for reasons I'll get into in a second. And so the government is going to present what's so-called anecdotal evidence. People saying they got false diagnoses, they got bad diagnoses, they know they were bad because they then got their blood tested, you know, by two other um, blood testing companies which showed different results as confirmed by doctors. She has moved to preclude this anecdotal evidence on the grounds that it's anecdotal, not scientific evidence. The court has basically denied the defense motions and allowed the government to move forward with the anecdotal evidence. The reason being that the court has concluded that she and Theranos were the ones who lost this inform- this laboratory information system. What happened was that the, the government um, subpoenaed it. She and her lawyers turned it over. It was encrypted. They gave a password. They didn't give the encryption key. And um, as a result of that, the government, then it was destroyed after the company went out of business. So it's no longer available, basically because according to the court and the government, that they didn't provide the encryption key to the government. And so they basically said, look, this was exculpatory. It's on you for not preserving it. And it's on you for not giving the government the information that it needed to access it. 
there one of the court opinions cited a, a um, email from a Theranos in-house counsel when they were producing the, the database uh, the in-house lawyer wrote to someone else, quote, it's ultimately not Theranos' problem if our system of storing and accessing data is inconvenient for outsiders, i.e. if the government can't get into this, that's their problem, not ours. Not a good lawyering decision, not a good lawyering decision, something, a cautionary tale, when you turn over data to the government, don't get cute, don't play games, don't say I gave you the data if you didn't give it to them in a way that was accessible, that's not giving up, the giving the data, and in this case, it blew up in their face, and as a result, the government's going to have a lot more leeway with producing evidence that the test didn't work um, than they ordinarily would have. Another fascinating issue that came up is that there's a waiver of privilege in this case. Uh, one of her prior law firms was actually engaged by Theranos rather than by her. And the court has held that a lot of the communications that she had with the law firm are not privileged because she was not the client. Um, and so this has opened up, again, a lot of evidence to the government that they wouldn't ordinarily have. This appears to be just simple sloppiness on the part of uh, Theranos, Holmes, and the lawyers in that there wasn't an engagement letter clearly defining who the client was. And this is something we hear from our ethics people all the time at the firm. Always make sure you know who the client is and make sure that's reflected in the engagement letter. And it seems like a technicality, but this shows what happens if you don't do that. And it's easy to fall into this trap when you have an individual client who's also the alter ego of a corporate client, you can get messy about who your real client is and you think nothing's going to happen. Well, this is really a good cautionary tale of what can happen if you don't clarify that. And this is also going to uh, create a disadvantage for the defense in this case. So those are some of the issues that we are likely to um, to see as the case goes on. Um, there are a number of other things that have come up that Victim testimony will be very powerful. Um, people who are given false diagnoses of this. Yeah. There was a motion by the defense to preclude evidence of her lavish spending and uh, lifestyle, which was granted in part, denied in part. The court, you know, rightly did not want the government appealing to class prejudices, but said that could come in to prove state of mind. There's been litigation about whether or not the results of regulatory inspections by the FD, uh, the FDA, among others, could come in. And again. Uh, this is something, you know, it might seem prejudicial, but on the other hand, when state of mind is an issue, if you've had a regulatory inspection and the regulators tell you your labs are not working, that all goes to what did she know and when did she know it? So I think some of that evidence is going to come in as well. Um, one issue that I've not seen litigate is the famous allegations that she deliberately altered the tone of her voice and you deliberately used a deep baritone to get more um, respect in Silicon Valley. I have no idea whether or not this is true. We'll have to see whether or not the government tries to throw this in to uh, make her look um, make her look like a fraud. Well, if they do, I think there'll be some uh, motion to preclude um, that kind of evidence. I have not seen that in the papers yet. It may exist. So at any rate, this is going to be a fascinating trial as it goes on. Um, and we will keep updating you. But to wrap things up, I just wanted to come back to you, Jerome. I mean, you follow securities fraud. What is this? This is really one of the most significant cases to come out of Silicon Valley. I mean, the other fraud cases we've seen, there's Wall Street, Enron, obviously, but we haven't seen that many come out of Silicon Valley. Do you think that this is precedent setting and is it going to change the way the SEC and regulators view startups 
going forward? And is it going to change the way investors look at these opportunities? Well, so I, I think it will change the way that investors look at these opportunities. Um, because well, let, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me start from your first question, which is, is it precedent setting from, from the SEC side? Um, I, I mean, I, I would say yes and no. Um, yes, because it is kind of, it is like that Enron Anderson moment, right? Like it, where everyone all of a sudden knows what the, I mean, I, I dare guess that before 2001 or two, most people in America had no idea who the SEC was. In 2002, everyone knew who the SEC was. Enron, Arthur Anderson, WorldCom were all over the papers. Here, I think it has that effect in Silicon Valley, right? It would be, um, you know, if there was ever any doubt that the SEC views itself as having jurisdiction over, um, over Silicon Valley companies that are offering securities, this case, frankly, both cases offer proof positive that the answer is the federal government views this as a, an affirmative. Um, will it change the way the SEC approaches the cases? I don't think so, because perfectly honest, I, mean, I think they, they, would, they, they probably have been putting resources in this more and more over the years. I mean, I, I know they've always looked at Silicon Valley. They've always looked at private offerings. So I would call it uh, precedent setting more from a sort of an industry standpoint, not necessarily an internal SEC standpoint. Um, will it change how investors look at um, these investments? Um, I, I mean, potentially, right? I, I mean, I, I think at the at the end of the day, um, you know, investors make these decisions based on the representations made by the principals, and if there's a greater likelihood or at least a concern or the specter of SEC enforcement and frankly, DOJ enforcement in this area. Well, then if I'm an investor, I'd say, well, this person is probably going to be a little more likely to um, not cut corners when it comes to representations about the, the viability of whatever product is underpinning the company that I'm investing in. Um, but, but I mean, to me, that would be, that would be the one area um, where I, I think it might alter how investors think. I mean, you know, maybe also getting money back in the event that there's uh, an SEC enforcement case and a liquidation brought against the company. But ultimately, I think that, you know, is the SEC involved in a particular area? That's probably not going to drive, uh, you know, Silicon Valley investors as much as the promise of returns and the promise ultimately of the product itself. Just true from all, all of human history. People can get yeah. scammed, but if there's an opportunity to make a lot of money, there are always going to be people interested in that. So I think what's fascinating about this is that I think there are a lot of people who saw so many successful Silicon Valley startups yeah. and that she was able to piggyback on that. But what nobody really thought about was that they were in the tech space and this is just a different kind of industry. This isn't, you know, like an Apple or Google, this is blood testing. And I think that she was able to play on that. And that's how she deceived a lot of very sophisticated people who sort of, you know, to their minds, their diplomats or whatever, they kind of lump, you know, you know, technology together and didn't look at it in a sufficiently nuanced fashion. Yeah, Tom, you know, I mean, I, I, and I'll put this back to you. Um, 
you know, we just spent 30 minutes talking about this and we could talk about it for hours more. It's an incredibly complicated fact pattern. Um, and one that's caused me to think, right? Like when you tell a story to a jury, there has to be a glue, right? Something that, 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 that kind of the God particle, if you will, right, of the story. Everything comes back to this. Um, you and I were texting a little bit about this last night. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. I mean, to me, everything is going to live and die. I think the government's case is going to live and die on the question of what did Elizabeth Holmes know about the TPSU, TSPUs, the, the mini labs function. You know, what did she know about the breakdowns and the need to go out and have to find third party suppliers, provide blood testing labs and, and investor demonstrations were not done using Theranos' own devices. At the end of the day, I, I think it's going to rest on that. And then all of the representations to, 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 to doctors, to retail outlets, to investors will be built off of what did she know and what did she not know about the functionality or lack thereof of the device that was basically the company. Well, I think that's exactly right. The government, it's going to be very important for them to keep it on the clear cut simple, easy to understand lies that she said she had contracts with the Defense Department. She didn't have contracts with the Defense Department. She said we had this much valuation. They didn't have that much valuation. She said she had contracts with retail stores. They didn't have that. Clearly demonstrable lies. The defense, by contrast, is going to try to get into all the technicalities and the details of the science that, the, you know, they said they had this kind of effectiveness, but they didn't really. To the extent to which the defense can make it about science and the details of the science, that's going to be very good for them because the jury's going to say who could possibly understand this. And it's really just a technical argument. And it's much easier to understand to believe that she had a good faith belief that this was working. But if the government can bring it back to she said she had a contract with the Pentagon. She told investors she had a contract with the Pentagon. She didn't have a contract with the Pentagon. That's something that everybody can understand. So I think that's there's going to be a tug of war between the defense trying to take it into the scientific details and the government trying to bring it back to high level, clear cut misrepresentations. Yeah. Uh, great stuff. This was fun, Tom. Um, I knew it would be and it was. Um, we hope you guys enjoyed it. I know that Tom and I enjoyed preparing for it and, and doing it. So um, any last comments, Tom, or should we let everyone go? Let's everyone go, but let's uh, continue to watch this one because it's going to continue to generate a lot of interesting issues. All right. Take care, everyone. Thank you.